It's going to be a good service today because we're going to talk about sex today. So that kind of got you all perked up a little bit, like it's about time you preached on something a little bit relevant. So we're going to talk about sex today, and you're probably wondering why. Well, the reason is we've been doing a series on the Ten Commandments, and we're up to the Seventh Commandment today in Exodus 20, verse 14, that says you should not commit adultery. So there we're there. Got to talk about sex today. Now, normally what you would do is a message like this. You just kind of talk about, okay, what does this verse exactly mean? What, does it, what can you do and what can't you do? That's normally we kind of go with this verse. Now, this verse is pretty straightforward. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room in this verse. It's kind of written pretty clearly. So what does it mean? What does it mean that you cannot commit adultery? What does that big word adultery actually mean? And I'm not going to tell you that yet. I might get to that a little later in my message. I'm not going to do that yet because I think what happens so often in churches when pastors have to talk about sex, we get a little bit nervous. We kind of want to avoid the subject, so we're not going to do it. We get a little embarrassed and we get a little flustered, and then we get very, very legalistic. And so we strictly will tell you what you cannot do, but we never tell you why. We never give any of the reasoning, like, why is there a commandment that you can't commit adultery? Why are there such guards around sex in the church? So what pastors, what we often do when we get nervous about this, we just pull the trump card and say, you can't do it, period. Because God said you can't, you can't. We never tell people why. And see, that approach isn't going to work any longer with this younger generation. The younger generation, the emerging generation, you just tell them, no, you can't do it. They want to know why. And I think we've done a disservice in the church when we don't explain why does God have commandments like that. See, this is a current landscape in our society, in our culture. If you tell somebody the biblical rules regarding sex and you don't follow it up with an understanding or a reasoning, they just think that we're completely out of touch. And they think we don't even have any idea what we're talking about because we can't give you any explanation. And so what the younger generation has done and the emerging generation has done is they just completely have stopped listening to us when we start talking about sex. And this is proven. In 2016, David Kinneman from the Barna Research Group along with uh, Gabe Lyons, they released a book called Good Faith. And in that book, they talked about our current culture and the emerging culture, and they found out that there's two perceptions that the younger generation or people that are outside of the church have of Christianity, of Christians. And the two views that they have is, number one, they are irrelevant, and number two, they are extreme. The whole gist of his book and the research from Barna Research Group was that when they look at Christians, they think they're totally extreme in what they believe in, and it's completely irrelevant to my life. So they don't want to listen. And so as a church, we don't want to have that reputation. We don't want younger people or people outside of the church to think we're completely irrelevant. So what we have done is um, we, we just try to fit in. We're trying to fit into culture. See, in the prior generations, the prior generations, you go back to 70s, 80s, 90s, they just looked at Christians and thought, okay, you're just a little bit strange. You're a little bit unusual. And that was kind of okay. That wasn't a big bother. You kind of think of some of those reality TV shows where they show the families with all the kids, a Christian family. You just look at them like they're just, just different. But now people outside the church are looking at Christians and saying, you're irrelevant. And you're extreme. 
And the latest tagline that they've given to Christians is that now you're a threat. People outside of the church are viewing Christians as a threat because they think what we're doing is we're trying to impose our views on everybody else. So we're taking our extreme and our irrelevant views and we're forcing it on everybody else and we're becoming a threat. And so as a reaction, what we've done a lot of Christians, what we've done a lot in the church is we said, well, I don't like that reputation. I kind of want to be cool. I want to fit in. I want you to like me. I, I, I can have a cool church and cool set designs, and I don't want you to think I'm irrelevant. And see, what we've done in our quest to fit in, we've bought into the lie that says if you're going to be effective, you have to be very popular. And churches have kind of bought into a little bit that middle school mentality of I got to be really popular in order for me to be effective. And we have forgotten that what makes us effective is our relationship with Jesus Christ. So what we've done over time is we've taken the authority of the gospel message of Jesus Christ and we've watered it down a little or maybe actually we've watered it down a lot because we want to be relevant to culture and we don't want to look like a threat. See, at time, one time we lived in our culture and we stood by the word of the God and we said, okay, if the Bible says it, we're going to follow it. But now the current culture has kind of switched a little bit and what they say is that I'm going to follow culture. I'm going to do what the world tells me to do unless you can give me a really good reason in the church for why I should have a different paradigm or a different view. So over time, we've seen our culture, just even church culture, look a little bit more like that ch- culture outside of the church. And so over time, what we've seen done with sex and marriage, we've seen that we've kind of cheapened the meaning of sex. And we failed to see the power of sex. And we almost have no regard at all for the biblical definition of sex. And I don't think anybody really meant to do this, but it's happened. So the big question is, why? Why does the Bible say you can't have sex before you're married? Why does the Bible say you can't commit adultery? Why does the Bible have rules about fornication? Why? I think the church would be a whole lot more effective if we would focus on some of the whys instead of just saying do not, do not to people. Now I have to warn you, I got halfway through preparing this message and I realized I don't probably have as much time as I really need to to address this topic. So there's probably be a few blanks here and there during the message, but I'm going to try to get to as much as possible. And also I want to say this is a very encouraging message. We have to remember there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. And I know sometimes when you talk about sex, people start feeling guilty like, oh boy, here it comes. I'm feeling guilt, I'm feeling shame rise up. You don't need to feel that way. See, that's what Jesus came for. He died on the cross for our sins so we could be restored. So if there's any condemnation, that's not from God. God wants everybody to leave here encouraged even if this message is very convicting because he wants to do something powerful in your life. So before I address the seventh commandment, before we go back to adultery, what is sex? Okay, I think before 
there's probably two main different views of sex. We're going to drive it down to two. We're going to have kind of more the biblical worldview of sex, and then we're going to have the cultural view. What is the world? What do people outside of the church say about sex? So first you get people outside of the church, and this is mainly the, probably predominantly the younger generation, the emerging generation. Sex is often viewed as just recreational entertainment between two people. That's all it is. It's completely physical. It's just something you do for pleasure. It might lead to commitment, or maybe it doesn't. It's just basically enjoyment. It might lead to kids, or maybe not. It's just purely enjoyment. It's purely recreation, and it's just two consenting adults. That's all it is, and that's probably up for a little negotiation right now, too. But basically, it's just people entering in for pleasure. Now, when you go to the other side, you go to what is the view of sex inside of the church, well, it's completely different. And first of all, you'd start in the church and say it's way more than physical. Sex is actually a very spiritual part of our life. But I think we have to be really honest and say that with inside of the church, you're going to find a lot of different definitions of what is sex, what is marriage, what can you do and can't do. And in some ways, that's really sad. Because in the church's quest to become relevant, we have ignored what the Bible really says about sex. And it's very sad. It's very sad to see what we have done inside of the church just because we're so desperately trying to fit in. And that just makes life really, really complicated when you don't understand sex and you don't understand marriage. Because we really miss out what God is really saying. So what does the Bible really have to say about sex? To do that, you need to go back to the book of Genesis. You go to Genesis chapter 2, where God does the very first marriage. A lot of you probably know this verse by heart, Genesis 2 verse 4. God is doing the marriage between Adam and Eve, and he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Question number one. God, if you're doing that marriage between Adam and Eve, why are you saying they'll leave your mother and father? They, they don't have parents. Why are you saying that? See, what God was establishing right there in Genesis 2, verse 4, is this is a prototype of marriage right here in the garden. This isn't something that just happened back in the garden. That's something that happened in the garden, but it's a prototype for my marriage and your marriage and every single marriage afterwards. So God's establishing in Genesis 2, verse 4, this is the prototype, and this is how every godly marriage will go from this day forward. So then after he says that, he says, and they shall become one flesh. Therefore a, man, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, one flesh, that's the power of sex. Sex makes two people one flesh. So there you have it. What is sex? Sex is a, jo- sex is a joining of two people into one entity body, soul, and spirit. Before sex, people are body, soul, and spirit individually. And now after sex, they are joined together, body, soul, and spirit. So in the Hebrew, the word for, the Hebrew word for one is eshed. I think it's in your notes. East, I gotta get a drink. So the Hebrew word for one is eshed. You take that word eshed, one, and you put it together with the word flesh, and it becomes, it kind of increases in power. 
As John Mark Comer says, he says, what you do is you put those two words together and it means fused together at the deepest level. That's what happens when two people come together. They're fused together at the deepest level. Now that's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's amazing. I love that. See, Eshed is really good for me because I can wake up with my wife and I want to be Eshed with her. That's good news. And we become more and more Eshed after time goes on. And that's just a blessing that God gives us as married couples. You just keep joining together. You become more and more one after time and it's beautiful. But what happens when you wake up in the morning and you roll over and you're Eshed to somebody you don't want to be Eshed with? Yeah, that doesn't feel as good. Maybe you're ushered with somebody you just met the night before and you're like, dang, I don't even want to go to breakfast with that person. And now you're ushered with that person. See, you're fused with any person that you have sex with. There's no such thing as non-ushered sex. There's no such thing as um, protection against unushered sex. You're fused together. When you get up from the bed, you're still fused with that person. It doesn't leave just because you walked away. And every time you come back together with that person, you get a little bit more eshed. Now, if you have a cultural definition of sex, just random hookups between two people, you're probably not going to like what I just said. It's going to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable that you're going to continue to have this eshed with somebody that you really don't want to have a connection with. See, every time you come together, you leave a little bit of yourself with that person and they leave a little bit of themselves with you. You're connected. You might forget that person's name. You might forget when. But your soul hasn't forgotten, even though it might be decades later. That's why they call it a soul tie because there's still a connection that's happening with you even though you've gone your separate ways. Now some of you might be thinking, well, that's Old Testament. That's just Old Testament stuff. Now we have Jesus, everything's different. Yeah, you're right, we do have Jesus, everything's different. And that's good because we can be forgiven of our ashed. And we can be restored if we have too many soul ties going on. That's the good news of Jesus. But this still biblical principle still goes into the New Testament. You think about it, in Paul's day, there was a city of Corinth. Corinth was a city that was known for lots and lots and lots of prostitutes. And Paul had a little problem in his church because a lot of the members of his church, they like to visit the prostitutes. So it's Paul's job to preach a sermon and tell them he can't do it. And how's Paul going to convince his church? He's going to go back to Genesis 2, verse 4. This is New Testament. Jesus has been born, went to the cross, and he's died. And now Paul's getting up there, and he's referencing back to Genesis 2, verse 4. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 through 16. He's saying to the, the people in this church, he said, You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you, Paul says. And even though you are allowed to do anything, Paul says it must not be become a slave to anything 
You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. That is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual morality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us up from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actual parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scripture says, the two are united as one. See, apparently people in Paul's church kind of had the same view of sex as they had about food. If I'm hungry, I eat. If I'm in the mood, I have sex. And so Paul has to come in there and say, uh, no, we got a problem going on here. And what Paul does in, in verse 13 is he brings up the word sexual immorality, which is the word in Greek, porneia. It's where you get the word pornography. And so now Paul's talking about a whole lot of other words. See, Paul's addressing here within his church, he's saying, we're, we're not just talking about the prostitutes, we're talking about porn, we're talking about inappropriate movies, we're talking about, the list goes on. You can probably think in your head what Paul's referring to by saying porneia. See, why is this all such a problem? It's because what the people are doing, it's a cheap imitation of what God intended. It's all a perversion of what God meant to be the, one of the biggest blessings in your life. So he's reminding the church, and he's reminding them that through sex, you're becoming one with a prostitute. See, Genesis 2 did not go away in the New Testament. It's still here today. So I think for some of you now, okay, Gen okay the seventh commandment is starting to make a whole lot more sense. That what God is doing in the Ten Commandments is that he's trying to protect the church. God is trying to protect the Israelites just like Paul was trying to protect the church. Now, if you're a virgin when you got married, you're like, this is all really, really good news. You like that. But if you're like most people that you've engaged in a lot of recreational sex prior to marriage, you're probably wondering, okay, what do I do now? What do I do? I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about your steps to freedom and what you can do. But first I want to remind us, what is the proper order of marriage and sex? See, my guess is probably every single one of you been to a Christian wedding. And you know when you get to a wedding, there's usually two sets of vows, and then there's the kiss. Usually the pastor will get up and we start that part where... You know, you repeat the, the first vows, the easy set of vows. You say, will you take this woman to be your wife, to have and to hold, to stay forward? And the groom says, I do. Then she does the same thing. That first, that first set of vows is really your vows between you and God. That part isn't to each other yet. That's what I'm saying before God. This is what I'm going to do because I'm entering into covenant. And then they remember, so then, you know, you do that first part, you say, I do, then they, they join to each other, then they do those personal vows. Okay, that, that's the personal vows. And then what do they do at the end? Then they kiss. Well, actually, the kiss is a representation of sex because really what consummates a marriage, what really makes a marriage is the sex afterwards. 
You actually went to, if you went to an Old Testament wedding, what they are going to do, you're going to have your vows, and then on the little church area, they're going to have a little private bedroom over there, and the couple will actually go in there and have sex and then come back out. We don't do that. We say, okay, kiss each other as a representation of what you're going to do later. And see, that was God's order and design for marriage, that two people would come together, and the first thing that they would do is they would make a commitment before God and then after they make a commitment before God, they make a commitment to each other, and then they seal the, seal the deal with sex. But what we've done a lot in our culture is we said, well, let's put sex first. Let's try that out. Make sure we kind of like that. See if that works together. Okay, that kind of goes, okay. And then we make the commitment. No, that's not the way you do it. See, the order is first comes the commitment and then you comes the sex part. So a lot of you are probably wondering right now, okay, I've done some things out of order. What do I do? Well, there's good news. God wants everybody to be set free. And God does have a remedy. He does have a solution for everybody. But the first question, before I tell you the answer, I have to define really what is freedom it's important to understand what freedom really is if that's really what you're seeking see i think a lot of times we develop maybe a wrong understanding of what really is freedom so you go back to the ten commandments the israelites get out of egypt they've been in egypt for 400 years they get out they finally are experiencing a little bit of freedom the very first time in their life they don't have to bow down to Pharaoh. They don't have to do what he said. They have freedom to do whatever they want. Well, maybe. Not entirely. Because God comes in and he's going to give them the Ten Commandments, tell them that these are the ten things that you need to do. This is how you need to live your life. But see, freedom for the Israelites actually comes in the prior chapter. In chapter 19, the Israelites are going to experience freedom because God makes a covenant with them. It's through covenant that brings the people freedom. It's the relationship with God that brings the freedom for the Israelites. Freedom is not in the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want it. Freedom is the ability to make the right choices at the right time. And that's exactly what a covenant with God does. God promises in a covenant that he's going to do for you what you're not capable of doing on your own. So God's not going to give the Israelites these Ten Commandments and say, okay, follow this and stand back and say, I wonder how they're going to do. Like it's a test, a fitness test of your spirituality. No, what God does in chapter 19 is he makes a covenant with his people. Because he says, you're never going to be able to follow me on your own. And so he says, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to have to help you. I'm going to make a covenant relationship with you. And a covenant relationship with God is he says, okay, I'm going to help you fulfill your part of the deal. See, normally we think contract. I do this, you do that. If it doesn't work out, we split. But think covenant. God comes in and says there's two sides of the equation. I'm going to have requirements of you. I have expectations for you, and then these will be the consequences. But God comes in in covenant and says, you'll never be able to do that on your own. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come in and I'm going to give you my grace. I'm going to give you my ability to be obedient so you can fulfill the covenant. And that's really good news. So listen in Exodus 19, verse 4 to 6. It says, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nations. See, that's significant what these couple verses just said. See, obedience does not come first. Salvation comes first. See, some days, times we think, well, i got to earn my way to God. No. What comes first is God's salvation and God's grace. And obedience is a result of the salvation that God has given to us. We obey as a response to God's salvation. And so in the next chapter, when God gives the Ten Commandments, it's given to people who have already experienced God's grace. And because we have experienced God's grace, we now have the ability to be obedient. So because of your salvation, because of your grace, and now you have the ability to be obedient, now we experience the blessings that God promises in the Word. So we got to remember that order. God saves people, which He gives them salvation. He gives them His grace. And because of that, people are starting to be able to obey him, to follow him, and then they receive the blessings of obedience. But covenant is God's way to make sure that you can have victory in your life. Because God knows that you'd never be able to obey him just if you had to do it on your own, so he comes in, kind of rigs it to give you the competitive edge so you can be victorious in your life. So you can have the freedom to say no. That's freedom. When you have the ability to resist temptation. See, sometimes people think, oh, freedom is when I have no temptations ever again in my life. That just ain't going to happen. We're all going to experience some level of temptation the rest of our lives. But freedom and deliverance is when you can look at that temptation and say, no, I'm not going to do that. And we receive that through God's gift of grace. And that is very important. Because if we want to experience the ability to resist and the ability to say no, we first have to be able to submit to God. See, that's the real issue at the table right now, if you want freedom. Are you willing to submit to God? Are you going to do what God has told us to do in his word? See, notice how God opens the Ten Commandments. Before he gives the Ten Commandments in, in Genesis 20, 20, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, what God's saying right here, he's saying, okay, I am your king. I rescued you. I'm not just your king, but I'm also your creator, and now I'm going to tell you how to live your life. See, because he's the king and because he rescued you, he gets to tell you how to live your life. 
But are we really willing to say, I will submit to that? See, now this is other really good news. This Ten Commandments stuff, this isn't just some random things that God decided. I wonder if they can do that. Every rule, every regulation, every command of God that's in his word, it's rooted in the character of God. Every single one of the Ten Commandments is a picture of who God is. Remember, Jesus comes and Jesus obeys the Ten Commandments perfectly. The Ten Commandments are a reflection of who God is. And as we are created in the image of God, God has called us to be a reflection of him. And that's why we follow the Ten Commandments. Because we become a reflection of who God is. That's why there's a great quote that says by R.C. Sproul that says, the law of God proceeds from God's being and it reflects his character. Everything in the Ten Commandments is what Jesus has already done for us. So if you want to get free, what do you do? You start by deciding, does the king have the right to tell you how to live your life? That's the first step to being free. In 1 Corinthians 6, we go back to what Paul was saying to the Corinthians church in verse 19. He said, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. See, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we must glorify with God on how we use our bodies. So that's the question here. If you want freedom, have you settled the fact that God has the right to tell you how to live? And that his commandments are not some arbitrary commandments, but they're a reflection of his character. See, freedom is found in submitting to the God that created you and the God that rescued you. And by submitting to God, then you find the ability to make the right choices. See, we know from God that his plan for sexual fulfillment lies in the covenant of marriage and that marriage is a spiritual transaction. Even though after sex, when the bodies separate and they might leave, they're still joined together. It's wonderful, but it can also be devastating. It's hard when you have a sexual past that you don't like. Or maybe it's a little embarrassing. And you kind of want to ignore it. And so if you're feeling uncomfortable today here in church or online, just I want to remind you that God has a plan to set you free. What if you've had a lot of sexual partners? Well, the truth is, you still are eshed. That still happens. God doesn't, uh, God doesn't suspend soul ties from happening in order to accommodate people's sin. He doesn't do that. It happens every single time. While I'm here, I probably should bring up a little bit of pornography while we're on the subject. Kind of ties into that as well. If you go to Matthew 5, verse 28, Jesus says, Anybody who's looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with his own heart. Wow. So now you can have adultery just by looking at somebody or maybe looking at a magazine. So does that create another soul tie? Wow. Okay, my answer on that was I'm not exactly sure. 
It's a strong maybe. I don't think it creates a soul tie such as your bodies are one with each other, but I think it's done a soul tie in your mind. That in some way there's some kind of soul tie in your mind to some of the images that you may have seen. And that's why it's common when you talk to people that have a long history of using a lot of pornography, you'll find them saying, I just can't get that image out of my mind. Or as much as I try, I can't get that image out of my mind. Actually, that is, a, that is usually, that sometimes is a marker of how do I know if I have a soul tie? Some of you might be like, I, I prayed about it. I, I repented in my life when I did sexual sin, so I have repented. How do I know? Do I still have a soul tie? We'll talk about that a little later, but part of it is if you just can't get rid of the idea of that person. Sometimes what happens to people that are not meant for each other, they shouldn't be dating, and they just, everybody looks at you and say, why are you dating that person? It's ridiculous. They have a hard time separating because they're eshed together. And there's a little part of me that's a little part of you and that goes back and forth and you can't break away. Sometimes you'll notice a soul tie is created when some pe- a married couple will say, yeah, when I'm having uh, sex with my wife, all I can think about is these other people I had sex with. You're still eshed with them. You come to the bedroom with your wife, you're coming with some people that you've eshed with. It happens. So a lot of people will say to me, Jack, I, I just feel like I've been in bed with a bunch of other people. Well, of course, you're eshed with a bunch of people. That's usually an indication of sometimes we need God to do something in our life. And God wants to bring freedom. That's his goal, to bring freedom. That's the good news of the message, that God wants to forgive every single person from anything that they've done in the past. And that's a good thing. And it's a good news because God can undo any soul tie that you've made in error or in sin or by mistake. God forgives and he can undo what you've done. And that's really good news because there's a lot of people who would not be here today, including myself, if God wasn't able to heal and deliver and to set free. And that's the good news of today, is that if you have a past, God can heal and restore and break you free from any bad shit that you're involved in. Usually if a person comes to me and says, I, I need help in this area, I usually find that they prayed a lot on their own. They prayed a lot on their own. They've asked God to forgive them a lot on their own, but they're still struggling. Kind of their addiction to porn seems to just kind of rev up. It doesn't seem to get any easier. And as much as they try, it's just like they can't break free. Or they're trying to have a godly marriage, but their sexual past keeps interfering with them. Usually by the time I talk to some person like that, they really want to be free. They've tried hard but they're just not making much progress. So this is what I tell people to do. I, I usually don't like giving people lists, but I'm doing it anyway today because you gotta start somewhere sometimes when you have some struggles in your life. So what do you do? If you're like, hey, I have a soul tie or I have a lot of eshit in my background, what do I do? Well, the first thing you need to decide is, is Jesus your king? Does he have the right to tell you what to do? And second, you need to understand, what is God's plan for sex? We need to understand, what is God's plan for sex and all the other recreational activities that involve sex? 
And so then I'll tell people, okay, come up with a list of names. Maybe come up with a list of names of all the people that you've had sex with in the past. Maybe come up with a lot of the different activities that you've done. People are getting really creative in things that they want to do. Make a list of all the things that you like still feel some guilt or shame or condemnation. And I want to tell you, you know, sometimes you repent of these things and God supernaturally comes in with sovereignty and sets you free. Sometimes people, it, it seems to be a little bit more of a struggle. So write these things down. And then sit down with God and confess your sins to God. Look what 1 James 1.9 says. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Take some time with your list. Not like you know, five minutes. Take some time and go through this list. Go before God. Maybe read the names of who you've done, what you've done, when you've done it, and ask him to forgive you. Right there, God will forgive you and cleanse you. It's written there. And then ask God to break any ungodly soul ties that you might have in your life and to restore you and to deliver you. You repent and then ask God to break any ungodly soul ties that you have. And sometimes you'll experience an incredible amount of freedom by just doing that. However, to be very honest with you, sometimes... It's going to take one more step. Often I find with people that have had a lot of sexual promiscuity, maybe earlier, or not always a lot, but have had some, that they don't experience a whole lot of freedom by just sitting down and repenting before God. They still feel a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of condemnation. And they just can't seem to get free. Now that was my testimony. Kind of when I was after college, I had a lot of eshid in my back and I didn't like it. And I just couldn't get free. And so it wasn't until Ron Renzema came into my life and the Lord used him to tell me what this verse, James chapter 5 verse 16 means. See, prior to Ron, I was the idea of my obedience comes first and then I will receive God's grace, and then I'll receive a salvation. So I'm trying to always earn my way into heaven, and that's just not working very good. Fortunately, Ron had a radical encounter with the Lord the year prior to when I met him after college and came into relationship with God, and because of Ron's relationship with God, I come into relationship with God. He knew it would happen sooner or later. But it, it was this verse. <clears throat> it's this verse. Transform my life. And this verse could probably transform a lot of people's lives in this room and online. It says, confess your sins to each other. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and it produces 
wonderful results. Some of you are looking for some wonderful results in your life. It's probably in James 5.16. Sometimes in order to see wonderful results in your life, you need another person in your life that you can confide in, that you can be open, that you can be honest, and that you can be transparent. Some of you need that. Someone to confide in. That's what I needed 30 years ago. Sometimes you need a person to hear your sexual past and to look at you and say, God's forgiven you. Sometimes you need a person to hear your sexual story and not reject you. Because the enemy's come into our life so much to us and he's tempted us to do things that we never really wanted to do. But he's tempted us to do things and he tempts us by saying, there's no consequences. And then the minute you get done, all the shame and all the guilt and all the condemnations there and you just can't get free from it. That's why God put James 5.16 in the Word. Because sometimes you need to sit down with somebody else and say, this is kind of what I've done. I'm really embarrassed about it. I have a lot of shame. But sometimes you need another person to look at you and say, isn't the grace of God wonderful? Isn't the grace of God wonderful? Isn't it amazing the restoration that God can do in your life? And then not only do you have to have that person hear you, but sometimes you need a person to encourage you on your journey in your relationship with the Lord. You can't do Christianity alone. That's how we all got in trouble, is on our own. You need that Ron in your life that you can confide in that can listen, but then encourage you on your journey as you continue to go forward. Because just because you get James 5.16 done, that doesn't mean the enemy's going to stop. And that's the beauty of having a person to confide in. We get so fearful of what if somebody knew? Or we get fearful because we're like, gosh, I, I, I knew better. You know, did, nobody wants somebody to look at them and say, well, you dummy, what'd you do that for? But sometimes you need that other person to look at you and say, I still love you. God still loves you. And sometimes you need to pray with that other person, confess your sins with that person, and to pray with that person and ask God together with that person, would you heal me from all the consequences that I've done in my life because of my inappropriate behavior? We need that. And then as James says, you're going to see some wonderful results. That's the good news of this message. It doesn't matter what you've done yesterday or the day before. What matters is the wonderful results that God wants to bring to each of you here and online. That's the good news. 
Some of you are probably a little feeling maybe a little heavy or a little guilty or a little condemned. No, that's not God. God's the one right now saying, look what I can do in your life. Look at the freedom that I can bring to you. I can restore what's been lost. Maybe things in the bedroom aren't going that great with your spouse. God's saying, I can restore that too. That's covenant. That's covenant when God comes in and says, I can do for you what you can't do on your own. Now stop trying to do it on your own. I'm the king. I've redeemed you. I've created you. I've saved you. I've set you free. And now let me restore everything that's been lost in your life. That's what God wants to do for you. So as we wrap up this message, I want to encourage you to pray this week and ask God, do I have any soul ties in my life? Do I have any eshet in my life? And listen to what he would say. Some of you already know, yeah, I got some eshet going on. These thoughts that come in my head and these people I remember, yeah, there's something supernatural to that. I encourage you pray through that. Pray through steps one through six. See if you experience freedom. Maybe you're like, uh, no, I need somebody else to talk to. Then I make myself available to each of you. And I know Ron is make, will make himself available to you. Ron's had some practice with people coming to him. I know my wife is, makes herself available to the women, and, and I know Susie will too. There's probably other people you could reach out. You don't need somebody that has to be a pastor to listen to your sexual story. You just need somebody that will sit there and pray with you and listen and say God forgives you. But I just want to make sure you know that there's at least four people, and I probably could name another four, but I just cleared it with Becky and those two earlier, so that's why I'm making them available. But you don't necessarily, you ask God if you need somebody to help you. And God will provide that person. All right, that's sex. That is. That's good news. That's the beauty of sex, is the eshed that happens with the person you love. <laughs>